If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about classic albums and decide if they deserve that distinction. And we also talk about some unsung classics in the hopes of bringing them to a new audience. And at the end of it all, we let you decide if we are right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. episode 30 of the Unsung Podcast. On last week's episode, we discussed animal rights by Moby and the public decided that it would not make it into our discography. So, Moby, we are sorry that none of your records are ever going to make it into our discography. Thank you very much to everybody who listened and everybody who voted. We have had a staggering amount of donations recently, so thank you very much to everybody that gave us some money. We really appreciate that. Uh, During the week, on Facebook, we said that if anybody was daft enough to donate £100, we would let you pick the album and we would also come to your living room and do the podcast for you. That offer still totally stands, although we completely expect that nobody will actually do that. But if you do, then we will, of course, comply. That is, of course, a location-dependent thing. and We're not going to travel outside the UK, I would assume. But hey, you never know what might happen. On this week's episode, we are talking about the Magnolia Electric Company by Songs Ohio. This is quite a long one. We go quite in depth on Jason Molina's extensive discography. Yes, we'll strap in for a bumper episode. Enjoy. Did you go see the killers last night? <laughs> <laughs> Hi, you're listening to Unsung Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Fraser, and I'm joined by two men who do not have personal stylists. <laughs> oh, sitting to my left is Mark Fraser, <laughs> and Mark Fraser has, as of this week, got a personal stylist. Flopper bougie. Based on an advert online targeted yes. at him by fucking robots. The algorithm. Yeah. The so algorithm. He literally has someone else buying his shit, cutting his hair uh, by internet, it seems, 
and um, fucking great things that I haircut. Giving him, feeding him new patterns. I don't know if that's going to happen. Um, sitting to my right is Dave Weaver, who's fairly unremarkable by comparison. <laughs> sitting to my left is Chris Cusack, whose personal stylist is just any photo of Steve Albini in 1989. <laughs> Speaking of Steve Albini, yeah, what record are we doing? We are doing the eponymous debut by Magnolia, <laughs> Magnolia Electric Company, according to Jason Molina, uh-huh. the late Jason Molina. Or we're doing Magnolia Electric Company, the final album by the, the act Songs Ohio, according to Jason Molina's record label, Secretly Canadian. So this album, there's a bit of dispute as to what it's actually been released under. Uh, the album's called Magnolia Electric Company. There's no di- no dispute over that. The record label says it was a Songs of Higher record, the seventh Songs of Higher record, and the artist Jason Molina, who was Songs of Higher, really says that it's the first Magnolia Electric Company album. Pitchfork disagree and say that Magnolia Electric Company officially came into being later that year. But you know. Who are they to correct the guy but I that think, wrote and recorded? I think music? as as lo- as much as the label knew this was a songs of higher record, Jason Molina just didn't tell them. But well, maybe no in his heart, of, he knew that this was something new. Songs See, of higher is not actually written on the record on the on the record sleeve. Yeah, uh, but it was in a sticker on the outside of the cellophane. Uh. Yeah, and also I think this was a Magnolia Electric Company record, but the record label were like, "That's an untested name. We don't want to lose sales." we're going to blag it that it's a Songs of Higher record because that's already got a following. That and I believe in, believe in Lizard People and I believe that Jet Fuel doesn't melt steel beams and I believe that Hitler left via and that you believe that Venus and the that Nike and introduced flat. shoddy ingredients Nike into Converse. Nike did introduce <laughs> shoddy ingredients to Converse when they took over. They absolutely did. And they took it out to sweatshops and they, they changed my entire wardrobe overnight. Incredible. I know somebody the that only can time change it again. Do you know somebody? <laughs> <laughs> so go, going back to the... What was Mark looking up that got him that? It came up my Instagram. Like, just like uh, Googling. Do you know, I must read his messages and see like what he's missing from his life. <laughs> yes. you know, Hopelessly clueless. It, it's not, it's way more intelligent than just what you Google for. It like searches for your emotions when you're messaging your friends and he's you like, know, what that void in your weeks, life man. is. Yeah, it's it's like, to fill the hole. Dear guy. mum, sorry, it's been a while. <laughs> I look terrible. Yeah, exactly. That's, oh. I keep buying black stuff. <laughs> Dear mum, I'm in my 30s, yet all my t-shirts have pop punk bands on them. <laughs> why, why am I single? That <laughs> may not entirely be true. I don't know. I haven't thought about it. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> anyway, now he wears polo shirts with the top button done up. I have lots of polo shirts actually. I've just not seen me wore one before. I always put the top button up. Was that a stylist thing? No, you should not have it buttoned all the way up. It's because he's so a football got a hooligan. No, you shouldn't. No, I'm, I'm fucking bucking the trend. <laughs> it's because he's a football hooligan. I was going to say, yeah, it's yeah. a total green street move, isn't it? Going right. out smashing faces later. Right, mate. <laughs> oh, football's fucking coming out, mate. Yeah, <laughs> fucking right. Today in work I spent the whole fucking day cutting out faces of England players so we can make masks. Oh that's exciting. Tiny faces for tiny Or the real faces. Like out of newspapers. Real faces like the Joker. You have a huge bit of elastic and then a face that's about an inch in diameter and you just put it on as a mask over your nose. Over your nose, yeah. And giggle, pretend it's covering your whole face. 
That's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> so this is good though because we were kind of like, how do we make an episode about a guy that died at thirty nine from multiple organ failure, brought on by <laughs> acute chronic alcoholism, entertaining? And the answer is, you just make fun of Mark yeah. before you start talking about the real stuff. <laughs> Pretty much. I mean, How? it's a tragic story, but also it seems weird that there's not been an indie biopic uh, made of this yet because it feels like it is one, just reading his, his biography and the narrative of his life. Yeah, his, just his life. writing with the ghost, the biography of yeah. him. Yeah. I really didn't know much about him at all coming into this. I'd, I heard his name, but just somehow missed the whole boat with his music. Mm. Um, I spent like the last couple of weeks getting to know it. Every so often, it kind of feels like in history, somebody has been like metaphorically thrown on the pyre and sacrificed for like great art. Their art has cost them basically their life and their family and all the stuff in between. And he kind of seems like one of those people that just was just, uh, yeah, if we're going to get this. A tragic album, individual. Yeah, just like a human sacrifice. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, this is the price you pay for for this and I think like it is uh, sorry it is overstating it but obviously it's not overstating it see just what an absolutely brilliant work it is we're talking about today in Magnolia Electric Company not worth what the guy went through obviously because he was a real person and so were all the people around him but it is an absolute masterpiece and unfortunately in retrospect all the tragedy just goes to kind of imbue it with even more poignancy Mm -hmm. I think especially given some of the subjects that he sings about and the really melancholy almost uh prescient nature of some of the phrases that are used in it so yeah it's a pretty staggering piece of work um i, I like quite a lot of, i like quite a lot of old country stuff nothing is quite like this that i've heard and i mean that in a good way yeah uh, this has that weird advantage of straddling that some of the best old country bands do i mean there's there's a lot of old country bands out there that never creep towards indie the way this did and he kind of bridged that gap pretty well which I mean, I'm not a huge fan of that genre I'll be honest and this is the most that I would really get into albeit I'm into this album in a big way but um, I think the connection with people like Steve Albini, the way that he produced the record, the connection with people like Scout Niblet and then all the various bands that were in his orbit as well there's enough of a tie to stuff that's a bit, for want of a better phrase, less corny than some of the alt country stuff that kicks about. I mean, there there are a lot of bands associated um, with Jason Molina, Songs of High, and Magnolia Electric Company. Uh, just to kind of name a few, there was a band called Uncle Tupelo. There was kind of a movement in the Northeast of America in the late 80s and 90s. And Uncle Tupelo sort of became Wilco and Son Volt. You were so right when you said I've been drinking. What was I thinking when you said goodnight? also the Jayhawks from Minnesota quite like some of the Jayhawk stuff um, but they went on to become uh, Golden Smog you will be there were bands like the replacements there was Big Star was kind of 
a big inspiration for this is Soul Asylum, who you kind of collaborated with a lot of these people in different projects as well. Uh, the Posies, even I think Peter Buck recorded some of these people's things. Um, and it also, this was the kind of music that informed people like My Morning Jacket, who they went on to collaborate with, with and also people like Count and Crows. You know, they, 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 they did the pop version of this. You know, as much as I think mm-hmm. there was a, a, a hint of grunge light in Count and Crows, they also took a lot from But yeah, it. there was a big sort of out-country movement in the mid-2000s as well, you know, that went really mainstream, you know, guys like Fleet Foxes and then it's yeah, it's it, forward exactly. with Bon and stuff like that. And, Ryan and, Adams, of course. And Bon Iver especially, being on Secretly Canadian and being the band that really made Secretly Canadian like a big hit in indie label. But Secretly Canadian as a label says it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Jason Molina releasing on it years and years earlier to get it all the credibility that it got. And then subsequently they ended up releasing quite a lot of big names, but that was largely built on the reputation that they fostered at this time. Yeah, and it, it really propelled them onwards. Like just Molina was born in 1973 in Ohio. He was raised in a single-wide trailer, in a trailer park, with a brother and sister, a mum and dad, um, and his mum was for most of her life a chronic alcoholic as well. Although I believe that, I don't know if she kept it up, but she went dry sometime around his graduation. But certainly for his childhood, that was his experience. And he was, as a recording artist, incredibly prolific. Yeah. 16 albums? Mm -hmm. Eight EPs, singles, compilations, collaborative stuff, like guest appearances here and there. Like, yeah. Like a lot of people who play, who are kind of, I guess you could say, quote unquote troubled, particularly in the kind of alt country sphere. You know, he was just as prolific as people like Ryan Adams, you know, who has released so many records as well. And it's for me, he's kind of on the same level as a songwriter, on this record at least, anyway. Mm. I would say I can't say I'm a huge fan of Ryan Adams I find that a bit too stale but um, I will <laughs> <laughs> I think Brian, I think there you are like, like, uh, like I really like Brian Adams Brian Adams I really like Brian Adams I fucking love Brian Adams I'm not gonna I like he's much better than Ryan well funnily Adams. enough I I'll connect Brian Adams uh, shit what record was it one that summer of 69 was on Reckless Reckless yeah mm. had that cassette in my parents car when I was little one of those ones fucking brilliant Run to you is a good tune. Run to you is an absolute belter. Wasn't so keen on his collaboration with Mel C. Oh no, that's a fucking modern classic. Cloud Nine. No, uh, <laughs> it's um, like a staple of your DJ sets, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so when um, you were gone. Yeah, when you were go- uh, baby, when you're gone. Yeah, he did have when one. Called, you're gone. He did have one called Cloud Nine, though. That's pretty pretty bogging. <laughs> Brian Adams has nostalgia for me, but funnily enough, country music has nostalgia for me, and I don't really know why. Because I was brought up in all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not much country music up there. There's cows. There are cows. I mean, there's a lot of country up there, but I think there's a lot of cunts. But um, I think it must have been... I really like I, the word country, but imagining it's spelled C-U-N-T-R-Y, as in like... A tree. The gentry, the country. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had a lot of nostalgia for country music for some reason, and I think it's maybe I must have watched like... Uh, Jigsaw Hazard. No, I don't know. Smoking like the Clint bandit. Eastwood films when I was little or something. Remember, every which way but loose. Every which way but loose. I think I genuinely did watch that when I was little, and there was always Clint Eastwood going into dive bars, and there'd be somebody playing with a lap oh, steel or something. Amazing. 
I've, so for some reason, listening to this, have you, have emotional you? response for me, for some reason, even though, you know, it's not, doesn't tie back to anything in particular. To yeah. go back to the Ryan Adams point, <laughs> actually, I think Heartbreakers is probably the best record I ever did. I think his discography is quite patchy. There's good songs and everything. And I, for me, this is kind of the same, the great album that he I think Heartbreakers is Ryan Adams' best as well. Yeah, yeah it's actually. definitely, yeah. Like, I did mm-hmm. once sit through a, a three-hour acoustic Ryan Adams show in Edinburgh. Oh my god, that was long and boring, and my numb, my <laughs> was arse it? was, was it very him? numb. Oh, he's got too much night. music. He's got far too much music, I think. Yeah, I know a lot of people love him. So, yeah, no, he's got good stuff. But this so. is more my. This has got a bit more zing to it. Yeah, a bit more <laughs> emotional punch, Christopher. You might yeah, say. Yeah, I mean, this is just uh, this is another level. So, one of the guys that Jason Molina worked with, a guy called Will Oldham, aka Bonnie Prince Billy, mm-hmm. the founder of Palace Records, and took part in Palace Brothers and all those different projects. And Will Oldham released Jason Molina's first single. Can I just stop you and do the Foo Fighters next? This maybe. Uh, yeah. Is that a possibility? Well, hang on. We'll have to find the music. Uh, oh, here it is. Oh, here it is. Two. Searching for something, something never comes, never leads to nothing, nothing satisfies, but I'm getting close, closer to the prize at the end of the road. All night long, I dream of the day, when it comes around and it's taken away, leaves me with the feeling that I feel the most, feel it come to life when I see your ghost. Uh, so as you might know, Will Odom, a.k.a. Funny Prince Billy, um, <laughs> had a little mind fight there. <laughs> I took the photo that graced Slint's Spiderland album. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Oh, he took that photo, you know, of them the like, water. neck deep in the water. So that was Bonnie Prince Billy took that photo. Slint guitarist David Pajo. Oh, yeah, yeah. David Pajo. David Pajo was also in Zwan. Remember <laughs> Zwan? Really? Was in Zwan? Billy Corgan's oh, shit. shit metal, uh, shit psych alternative yeah, prog fuck. Has Len Chantin. Len Chantin. She was also on that Zwan record. She also played on a Queens of Stone Age record. And Dave Grohl played on Songs for the Deaf. So that's a four stage Stone jump. Age. Mark, was can you five? see... Was that a five stage jump, maybe? Could have been a five. It goes... Can you see that and raise it? Yes. Oh, oh Dave. Steve oh, Albini. Oh. <laughs> Oh, I know, I was going for a long, <laughs> you've gone for a short, fine. Steve Albini produced this record. I would like us to try and find one at some point that involves a dog. <laughs> okay. I'm serious. Oh, a, there will be one. That, there will be one, definitely. Be one, that's right. a challenge, though. There's, it'll probably be to do with Megadeth. <laughs> Is that... Are you being funny? No, because Dave Mustaine got chucked out of Metallica for kicking uh, James Hetfield's dog. Is that true? That's a fact. Well, that's a urban myth, legend. Wow. Possible fact. Probably. Maybe try and work that in somewhere. So... Probably thought it was like a lizard person. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so sorry. Uh, uh, Foo Fighters next is over. It complete. Will we play some music too? Yeah. yeah. Gets better every week. Well, I don't know. I enjoyed that. Um, I enjoyed the one three weeks ago. <laughs> Is that your favourite? Yeah. Good. The lullaby I'll, one. I wouldn't ask you to sing it. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so Jason Molina was a big Black Sabbath fan, and like when he started playing music, he was into stuff like. Um, well, he was he was in, I think he was in a band called Spine Riders. That was like his first metal band playing bass, but he gradually transitioned into this kind of alternative folk lo-fi. I don't, I don't know. I don't want to pigeonhole it too much. It's not over. He certainly his solo stuff, songs of higher stuff, is not overly country ish. It's. It's definitely the uh, it's definitely the alt in the old country, you know. All country's got yeah. a lot more to do with old rock, but it's got a lot of blues in it. Yeah, it's, yeah, got it's a lot good way to put it. Actually, it's mm. like, it's like there is very much the alt in old country. It does have big hints of it, yeah. and arguably the Magnolia Electric Company stuff has more of the like slide guitar and that kind of thing in it that than the other output. His voice are, as well carries that kind of country vibe really well too. And it's interesting you brought up like the metal thing because that was the same. I, I don't want to keep bringing it up, but Ryan Adams is exactly the same. Like he he came up listening to metal and. And punk, he did a punk record like four or five years ago as well. But he came up listening to that kind of stuff, and then he transitioned into. So did Brian Adams. Yeah. He liked guitars. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Runty is it's got a good riff. But Ryan, <laughs> Ryan Adams did a he did a, a metal record called Orion, and and then obviously Jason Molina did some Black Sabbath covers. I can't know. think of a Brian Adams joke to, <laughs> to parallel that. Yeah, because he is better though. He's not. But this this record is great. <laughs> okay, Tune in next home. week. <laughs> so, so um, thanks. It's falling apart, guys. <laughs> yeah. So Jason Molina's got a really tragic story ultimately. Um, but up until the point of this record, his what became severe alcoholism wasn't really as manifest in in his life. Um, according to his bandmate Jason Groth, like it was around about two thousand and three, which is when this album came out, that it really started to they started to notice it. Well, funnily enough, his his brother said that when they were little, he was the one that was anti-alcohol. Jason was the one that would avoid alcohol when they were growing up. So, but we'll maybe talk about that a wee bit later on. But you see the reports about emerging after this album, and certainly in the tours immediately after this album, it started to to be really noticeable. But there is a clarity to this album, a real kind of clear-headedness, and certainly a focus that isn't for me there in his earlier work. And I'm, I'm I don't want to be disparaging. I like Jason Molina's stuff i like songs of high and i like his eponymous uh, output as well i don't think it's anywhere near as good as this though i think it's it's got its moments uh, it's got some really strong moments it's quite idiosyncratic it's very subdued very uh, minimalist um there's a record called uh access and ace i think it's called it's pronounced a track in that called redhead from 1999 it's a really lovely bit of music Heckling Gripper from 97. It's a really thin sounding record. It's very lo-fi production and I think it loses something because of that. It find that the, str- the songs may be as well written but they struggle to come across as well as the output from this point onwards where the production values are slightly higher where he's playing with a full band uh, the lineup of the band for songs of higher previously had just been a rotating thing with him at the center of it sometimes just him and he seemed to get more of a sort of regular team together for for this point he had an eponymous record in 97 which fans of him Called the Black Album, which is listening back to it, it's 
it's impressive as a as a an arrival point, but I I don't think it holds up massively well. I think it, rem- it is reminiscent for me as well of like Elliot Smith. I think some Elliot Smith's earlier stuff is very interesting, but doesn't bear massive amounts of listens. Yeah. Um, I think he started to really develop as he went on and um, and ultimately improve. I think it's really interesting when, obviously, these, like Elliot Smith, he's not as he got to a point when he realised that when he had the band and the production and the budget that he could actually fulfil what was probably like his actual musical vision. If that makes sense, Elliot Smith definitely got that as, as his career went on. I would, I would say, I would say that the stuff that he did when he had when it was full band was arguably better than the stuff beforehand. Yeah, it's it's difficult to know sometimes though how some of that earlier work might have sounded fleshed out with that added maturity because yeah. there's certainly the tracks like Redhead by Songs of Higher, I think could have been really beautiful if approached in the same manner as the stuff in Magnolia Electric Company, and. You know, if you take the time to really go through those first like six albums, there are undoubtedly moments of really great songwriting. So apparently, Jason Molina used to approach being a musician like a full time job. He used to make himself sit and write for six to eight hours a day as though it was a job, and then just discard the vast majority of what he wrote um, to try and keep the threshold up of the quality. He'd made a comment in an interview about how he almost felt guilty about why when someone was taking out the bins, why was he the guy watching them taking out the bins and not the one doing it? He felt he was lucky to be a musician and therefore he felt obliged to sort of apply himself to it in a kind of professional manner. Hi, sorry for interrupting, uh, but as we record, we have just heard that Boris Johnson has resigned from government. He's just followed David Davis as well, all part of the, the old Brexit excitement. So if you can uh, just donate us a little bit of cash, then you will also be putting uh, some funds towards my Prime Minister leadership bid. Uh, I will be running on a vests-only campaign. <laughs> uh, no socks. Sockless. Sockless. Re- repeat. Sleeveless. Sockless. And... Uh, fraudless, <laughs> and uh, that, that's it really. That's my three things. Did you say fraudless? Fraudless. I won't be committing fraud. Oh, that's <laughs> that's going to really go against the grain of British politics. Well, exactly. I know. <laughs> going for a fresh start. So uh, yeah, if you can donate anything, then it would be much appreciated, and we will uh, we will be bringing black metal to the masses soon <laughs> through legal process. Um, there was an album that was released about a year after this when he started releasing stuff as Jason Molina called uh, Pyramid Electric Company and it was originally meant to be a companion album for this you know like a kind of sister album That's just the end It's being alone In the dark Tonally production wise just general mental impression that it gives you is so polarly opposite though um that i think they ultimately decided not to um there was a year between them and he he subsequently released a whole bunch of stuff as jason molina 
but uh, the Pyramid Electric Company is an interesting album. Um, it's much, much darker than this, um, or at least the arrangements are much sparser. So uh, it's, it's a lot more bleak. A red comet's down. What I wanted to really say about this album, and I think it kind of holds for a lot of this kind of music, um, there is something weirdly appealing and engaging about very intense, very, I don't want to say pessimistic, but um, music that tackles very dark subjects, yet attempts to sound upbeat. And there's something really compelling about that. There are plenty of people making very dark music about very dark subjects and doing it in a very dark fashion. Very sparse, very slow, very somber, whether it's in a gothy way or a, a sparse acoustic way. And it can be amazing, but it can also be, oh, so yeah, much. Sometimes miserable music so is hard work. just miserable. Yeah, it can mm. be such hard work. Uh, I know it's like an incredibly crass brushstroke here, but like, there's also an element of sort of wallowing in mm. that. It's a miserable subject and I'm miserable, you're going to be miserable, we're all going to be miserable, here's a bit <laughs> of miserable music. I would say that some of the detractors of bands like Radiohead... I was just um, about to say, that's what people always say, oh, fucking cheer up Radiohead. Yeah. It is a thing that people... Wake, <laughs> <laughs> the Father Ted scene with the guys. And the, yeah. you know, it's like, you can kind of see where they're coming from that, but then again, when Radiohead take a dark subject, mm-hmm. but then apply it to something that's maybe... Yeah, it's that juxtaposition that really works. Yeah, it, the there's time. something really compelling about that, taking that subject. Now, this album is packed with really sombre messages, like really sad, intense moments of introspection, and yet it, it tries to remain really quite positive musically. Like, slide guitar, it's quite pacey, the drums kick in at points when in his other work there just would have been no drums arriving. You know, you've got a song like, I mean, to get ahead of ourselves, but almost was good enough, where uh, the, the line, uh, almost no one makes it out, is repeated. And you can imagine almost no one makes it out being repeated in a track by Radiohead, that, you know. <laughs> but yet it's done in such a way in that album that it's almost like he's, he realises it, but he's trying to not let it get on top of him. So throughout, there are some really intense messages, yet they're delivered with energy and a sense of like trying to be optimistic. It's not always convincing that mm. it's genuinely optimistic. And it's that beautiful thing where the occasional minor chord comes in and the optimism, the facade of the optimism sort of falls away. And you see that, no, nah, really, this is this is this guy's kind of struggling with a lot of things, but he's trying. And there's been some really wonderful music made over the years that I think does that, where you've got somebody who's really in a bad place but is trying exceptionally hard to convey it in a way that's constructive and enjoyable and invites you to join them without and without them trying to pass their burden to you they're, they're communicating with you but they're not trying to bring you down there's something like weirdly i learn about that and i find that music even yeah. though it's dark it's easier to go back to yeah no i totally get that it's it's that like trying to grab some hope there somewhere with what they're doing you know find the optimism in their own darkness it just creates such a weight in this album because the, the songs aren't overly 
brief they're, they're they indulge themselves a lot yeah yeah but it, 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 you don't feel like you're getting battered around the head yeah. it's given it a longevity that i didn't expect it to have mm-hmm. and i don't think necessarily that's translated as well into some of his other material which can be very tough going it's beautiful absolutely and for the purist and for the fan absolutely if you enjoy this album uh especially i mean the other magnolia electric company stuff is much more upbeat and much more produced i don't think any of it's as good as this or as well written as this or as has come together in quite the same way but it is certainly not as difficult but certainly the stuff under jason molina and the stuff under songs of higher can be really tough going if you're giving it a protracted listen uh, but it is worth checking out absolutely worth checking out especially if you're also a fan of something like elliot smith also okay. It's a kind of interesting coincidence, um, and I didn't re- actually realise it until we started looking into the background of this, because I just I, I heard about this album kind of inadvertently uh, via Scout Niblet's connection to it. Um, but this has quite a strong connection with Glasgow. In fact, it turns mm-hmm. out the whole scene has a connection with Glasgow that I wasn't yep. in, uh, entirely aware of, if, if I'm honest. So he'd, he'd recorded um, a Songs of High album called The Lioness with a guy called Andy Miller at Chem 19, just outside of Glasgow, in, yep. in Hamilton area. You can't get here fast enough. You can't get here fast enough. You can't get here fast enough. He's uh, recorded with uh, Alistair Roberts. Yeah, yeah alongside with Alistair Roberts and the guys from Arab Strap were on that as well. And Andy Miller's also worked with the likes of Mogwai and Life of the Buildings and Arab Strap as well. These are like Scottish indie royalty to some extent. It's interesting to find an act that I had no real knowledge of has such intrinsic ties to the city and so did the acts around them as well. A lot of the people that he was playing with at that time were really heavily involved in Glasgow and it was, uh, yeah, weirdly like, like at times like a second home for some of these guys. As it turns out, Scout Niblet recorded at Game 19 as well um, and she appears on this album. So that was, that was really fascinating. Alistair Roberts, Will Oldham, a.k.a. Bonnie Prince Billy and Jason Molina also collaborated on Amalgamated Sons of Rest EP, which was a 2002 record, just the trio. It's the only thing they ever did together, I can imagine, given that in 2003's alcoholism started to become a big problem, that maybe interfered. And Alistair Roberts is still a guy that's very active in Scotland. It's still a a name Mm -hmm. that you see about regularly. And yeah, I don't know that was, it was like a little like burst of like mild pride when I was doing the research Mm -hmm. for this. I'm like, you just notice the word Glasgow coming up right, left and centre. And you're like, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You forget how important the city is to that year of music. And that's without even touching all Teenage Fan Club and the Vaselines and all the stuff those bands were doing. Who you would never go and see now? I would go and see the Fannies now. I would not go and see the bulk of the rest of them because... <laughs> yeah, I mean, because you think allowed. you think once yeah once you've made three records you should just quit music. I, I think once you've made three records you, you should you kill yourself. Yeah, yeah. How many records have you made? Three. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but this album, this album, it's a pretty good record. So like when Jason Molina completed this, apparently he had a conversation with one of the members of the band on the way home from the studio, and he called this uh, the most important thing he'd ever done with his life. Uh, I think like early on, all the contributors were aware of just how special what, what they just achieved mm-hmm. was. Farewell Transmission, the track you mentioned, is 
such a brilliant opening and the slide guitar intro the snare comes in it's smooth it's kind of effortless it doesn't crash in it's no drama there's no like weirdness in the production yeah it's just a really paced relaxed arrival It really unfolds it. I mean, it's about eight minutes long, isn't it? Yeah. So it, it takes a while. It doesn't even... I was going to say it takes a while to get there, but it doesn't. It gets there really... It kind of gets to the point really quickly. It but does. then it just kind of... It, it doesn't even labour that point. It just keeps building and adding and... It does not even, very... You know, not even, like, making it sound big. Just It just keeps developing the theme you know in that, interesting you know that ways. Neil Young, Bob Dylan thing of having quite a lot of verses. Mm-hmm. It <laughs> does that, but it does it really well. Yeah. It doesn't do it in a way where you're like, oh my God, he's going round again. It does it in a way that is like, it, the narrative keeps developing. Mm-hmm. You know, apparently, I was reading a little bit about this, and we'll talk about production, because production on this record is superb, and as much as we've criticised Steve Albini at points, this is Steve Albini at his absolute best. And I think, like, um, this song in particular... The whole band had just been told, like this was all recorded live. They were just told yeah, the chords. This is pretty much a first take. Yeah, this exactly. One. So they they'd never played this before as a band. They were told the chord progressions and then just asked to, to play through it with you know they they played and they didn't know how to end. Exactly, that was an issue. <laughs> didn't know how to end, and apparently towards the end, Steve Albini like opened the opened the door because it was getting a bit loud and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. and and that's where the whole kind of the, the listen, listen, mm-hmm. listen thing comes. He just improvised that because he was like actually trying to talk to Steve Albini at the time and that's that's on the record. Listen. Listen. Um but that's something that he always liked on his records was that sort of imperfection as well. And that's what this record kind of gets perfectly is that like organic sound of a band like really on it but also at the edges of what they they know and yeah, what they're not, capable not of doing. Yeah, not in the comfort zone. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And you can hear that. It's fucking brilliant. Yeah, he um, spoke about like in the album previous to this with, with leaving in some of the mistakes from the live takes especially because he wanted the musicians to have left their own distinctive marks. He's like, if someone's style of playing led to like a weird noise or something like that, he wanted all these little characteristics to be in there. He didn't want to delete all the little idiosyncrasies of people's playing styles, whether they were perfect or not. On music like this, then that's like, perfect for me. You know, it's like the exact opposite of something like Catch 33 by Meshuggah. Yeah, that's exactly which is, what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> which is another of my favourite albums, but and it's so computerised and clinical. clinical. Yeah, yeah. But that works perfectly for that record. But for this record, you want personality and you want all these you know t- the tiny essence of absolutely what everybody's I th- on I think that record of music that's for me i think sorry to say and no offense but i think that's where the likes of ryan adams often falls down and i think that goes for a lot of the contemporary alt country stuff i think some of it's quite stale like they've tried very hard to use analog gear they've tried very hard to record in a way that makes it sound warm and earthy and use all the plugins they can but yet there there's an authenticity that's missing because it doesn't have that raw, live, nervous. And it's maybe a difference between the type of musicians that are on the records as well. Um, as well as, you know, the production and the leader of the band, you know, a lot of acts will get in 
studio musicians and session musicians and they're very different to good musicians who are just there to you know to play along because if you're a session musician you are there to play what needs to be played and uh whereas you know jason sort of did the opposite and was like you know make your mark to this make your mark in fact like not even letting them learn their parts just being like here's the chord progression go through it a couple of times this is the rough tempo okay record i mean winging it like that and the track ends up the opening track on your album Mm -hmm. is wow you know and this was like this must have been a step up in terms of production cost because albeit steve albini is not a particularly expensive guy to record with uh, in the big scheme of things it's still a Electrical audio in Chicago is still a big deal. It's still a proper setup. It's still a proper studio, and there's budget involved in that. So it just to although ris- he didn't particularly pay his uh, musicians that well on this record, apparently, uh, in that he uh, made them all an original painting and uh, gave them pizza, and uh, that was about it. And they were just there as friends. This was like a project for them. So, you know, they didn't have high musician costs from that perspective. So They're, they're credited, though, on it, aren't they? So they would Yeah, they would yeah. Have, I mean, I, they would have got royalties from yeah. it and things like that. But, you know, this wasn't a big cash transfer or whatever, you know. Sounds like the kind of bullshit Amanda Palmer would pull. <laughs> 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 um, you know, and it's also talking, about, like I was saying earlier on, about the tone and the, the, the tone versus the levity of it. To start the record with, the whole place is dark. There's also something that I read that makes a lot of sense about jason and his use of dynamics and that was and that's very apparent on this record is that he was just a fucking master of them apparently he had this technique where he'd turn his guitar up excessively loud but then play it really quietly so that there was like a tension to the style to the sound of the guitar like the guitar sounded like you know you would have that extra bit of hum that extra bit of throb and he so he would play it delicately even though the volume was too high Mm -hmm. And then every so often he would hit with a big dynamic resonant chord or something that just people had become so accustomed to the volume as it was, didn't even realize that headroom was there and it would have like a really dramatic, powerful effect. And that came from setting that that initial volume up really hot and then playing it gently with tension. It's that sort of knowledge of dynamics and theatrics even. Yeah, Yeah, there is an element of theatrics that I agree. Second track in this, I've uh, been riding with the ghost. Like he has an obsession, I noticed throughout his, some of his records with ghosts and hauntings. There's Ghost Tropic, the record which has the track Ghost Tropic. There's not just a ghost's heart. There's uh, the biography was kind of named after this, Riding with the Ghost. Uh, Pyramid Electric Company has Spectral Alphabet. It, it kind of contributes to that sort of slightly doomed air that you get in hindsight going back through his catalogue. There is that weird prescience, that weird kind of like. Yeah, I don't know if this guy's going to make it the full mm-hmm. the full term, you know. Um, it does seem he seems really quite haunted. Yeah, riding the ghosts is it starts very gently, like it's going to be. Oh, here he is. This is him getting really downbeat, and then just kicks in. Oh, we could be about to feel sorry for ourselves, but we're not going to. And you've got a full band, and it's quite a. I say it's not a stompy tune, but for, for for country, you know, for alt country, it's quite quite driven. It's quite it, it, it's propulsive. It's got that line in it as well. Uh, like I've been looking door to door to see if someone will hold me, which I think is a really achingly sad line. <laughs> yeah. Again, set to this upbeat 
almost cheerful arrangement in the background. It's also got that refrain, I need to make a change, trying to make a change. That said, though, this is before the, the chronic alcoholism. Um, maybe it's not entirely before it. Yeah, maybe, maybe it just, was, yeah. yeah, maybe people started to notice, mm. but um, certainly seems to be before it was playing such a huge destructive role in his personal life. But I think, you know, if it was there before or, or after, I don't know, I haven't read the, the biography, so I'm not going to, you know, I'm not a fountain of knowledge on it, but, you know, I have read bits and bobs about him researching over the last few weeks. And it does seem that maybe the the alcoholism kicked in at this time because this was turning point record for him uh, in many ways, you know, musically, emotionally, just personally as well. And for many contemporaries as well at this time, there was My Morning Jacket and the Avett Brothers and things like that who were similarly getting recognised. And some of them were ready for what was going to be thrown at them. Jason never had a manager, you know, he's self-managed and... Uh, and with his wife as well later on and he's maybe just one of these guys that was just never ready for what the music industry requires of you there's also that thing i mean when you said this is the most important thing he did with his life what, what happens when you finally achieve that artistic thing that you knew you were capable of and it doesn't yeah. fill the hole inside you that's exactly what i was thinking as yeah. well because it's like if you feel as though you've made that statement I guess there's obviously a part of you that kind of if you if you approach like a job, then there'll be that part of them that's like, well, I need to go back and do this. I need to go back and keep working. How do you start? How do you live up to the the internal pressure you'll have to like how, how do I top this thing that is that's really important? Yeah. Also, know? this isn't helping. Yeah. I've been working towards this, thinking this was what my purpose. This was, you know, the reason I felt like this is because I hadn't attained this, and now I'm now I'm really doing it, and it, it still feels just as futile like the third track on it it just be simple is the most country track for me yeah it's extremely country and you'll never hear me talk about one day getting out why put a new address on the same old loneliness when i first heard this um it was via my man Dave Warner, um, who was really like encouraging me, as he does with so many good albums, including my sugar, um, to get into them properly. The country stuff I found really hard to digest at first. Uh, this and the, the fifth track, Old Black Hen, that we'll get to. Yet, fighting past my kind of gut instinct, I mean, the male-female male harmonies in this are quite traditionally country. Yeah, totally. And it's got the, you know it's got a lot of slide throughout it and stuff like that. And oh, sometimes the, some just the accent as well. It's yeah. like that yeah. southern drawl. If heaven's really coming back, mm. yeah, <laughs> and it's a beautiful line as well. If heaven's really coming back, I hope it has a heart attack. Mm. But they sing it in such that hokey way, and it was that stuff that was the last for to click for me for this uh, as regards this band. Almost was good enough fourth track, which we mentioned already. I love, I love the way it lands. It just kind of lands with that 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 splash of instruments yeah. just all coming in. Yeah. 
it actually reminds me, and I, I mean this as a, a, a real compliment, um, the new Adventures in Hi-Fi era of R.E.M., which is, for me, like monster, monster new Adventures in Hi-Fi was when that band was at its most interesting and its most rewarding and least orthodox, I would say, as well. Like it's Other than when it was very young and it was quite edgy in this new thing. Um, and the New Adventures era was where R.E.M. had no real pressure and they were making some really interesting stuff. But it had like a large production. It was recorded live as well. It happened fast, it's over queer. A little dust in the engine caps. Get your hands stripped down. Almost Was Good Enough really reminds me of some of that. Um, it's got that kind of Midwest Plains spacious vibe where via the the organ played all the way through it um, and that's the one always obviously that has that line almost no one makes it out again it's strewn with these kind of bl- or bittersweet kind of bleak mm-hmm. reflections yet manages to be quite beautiful and compelling at the same time the fifth track the old black hen which by the way i cannot fucking understand why it's not called hard luck lullaby yeah. hard luck lullaby yeah it's really weird <laughs> which is like the, the line from it that everybody knows is that you again singing the bad luck lullaby? Come right on in. Um, one thing that I like about this record is it gives away, it basically gives away songs to other singers. Yeah, two it does. fucking brilliant songs. Two really good songs. And yeah, this, I wasn't expecting this when it came on. I was like, "What? What is this?" Yeah, so but I love it so much. A country man. singer from Chicago called Lawrence Peters sings in this one, and he has got that really oh, yeah. There's there's something about this sort of take the mic attitude that you can hear in the studio as well that just adds to the I don't know just a really fucking nice it feels kinetic you know? yeah it it's like, like a communal sense we're, we're all in this that, studio yeah. making something fucking mm-hmm. special happening I think actually see um, when we go to edit this I'm going to try and find a clip of Jason Molina singing this song because I'd love to compare it I want to hear what it sounds like with Molina singing his own song in this one because Peter's version is definitive I would never have thought I would have enjoyed a song with that OTT country accent in it. it I mean, he smashed it. It's, it's a really beautiful song. Yeah, and having it's, it's the ear for it as well, man. Like, obviously, Jason's kind of went, this needs this needs something that I can't give it. Yeah. So I need to yeah. get something to do it. Absolutely. There, there is a, it, it, it also adds a level of variation to the album that gives it a jolt of energy at a point when it could have sagged. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like it gets into the fifth track. It's like you need to do something to keep it you know, to keep it alive and it does, it just changes it up in a weird way. It's a really nice chorus as well, just the ooh, ooh, ooh kind of harmonised thing with the xylophone over it. It's, it's a subtle bit of writing, but it's really nice. Um, I, I think there's some really really poignant lyrics in this one there's a there's a chunk of it that i wrote out which is like uh, i've missed a couple of bits out but basically sing it over the cradle uh, leave all the truth in so they know what comes next leave in the true love they never find 
show how they're looking for it all of their lives. It's like basically tell your children the truth about life. Tell them they'll never find the perfect partner. Tell them they'll spend their whole life longing mm -hmm. for a fulfillment that they can never get. And yet it's sung over this old <laughs> black hand. <laughs> Jesus, man. It's almost perverse in a Trojan horse way that it's like, we're going to fill your head with the most misanthropic fucking messages, but we're going to do it in a nice way, you know, mm. spoonful of sugar. When he keeps repeating, the, when he keeps repeating Bad Luck Lullaby as well, it, it feels like it's getting heavier every time. Yeah. The phrase, you know, because of, of what's happening around it. It just feels like, oh my God, what's going on? A Bad Luck Lullaby. <laughs> yeah, this is getting heavy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so track six is, as I said, it's, it features Scout Nibble and it's another one with his past to Mike. Scout Niblet, or Emma Louise Niblet, she's a singer from Nottingham, who had gotten into it quite by accident and then it was listening to her stuff and seeing her guesting on this was where I first heard about it. So the track's called Peoria, Lunchbox Blues. It's a very bluesy song, it's very subdued. It's probably, I think, the sad, saddest track in the album mm -hmm. overall. She's an interesting character. I mean, she's she's recorded with Steve Albini quite a bit as well. She does very sparse arrangements, sometimes pretty weird. She's got a, a really cool song called, I think it's Pom Poms. some really interesting records. I think she's got about four or five albums. Uh, she, Like I said, she did stuff with Andy Miller at Chem 19 as well, so she's got the Scottish tie. She's also apparently a professional astrologer, <laughs> and her albums are like littered with fucking astrology and Neptune and Venus <laughs> and quite probably Uranus. <laughs> again, that, that, like David said, passing the mic film gives this song, again, as like another burst of difference on the record, which it doesn't, at this point, you kind of don't need that. It needs, I think the female voice is really good at this point, yeah. though. Yeah. It, yeah. it does work, but after after the song before it, you're not expecting it, you're definitely not expecting it to, to change again, mm -hmm. and it's like, holy shit, this is... One thing that's different, though, not just in, you know, the gender of the voice or the, the pitch, the, the singer before, like, um, Peter's is so, such a strong, confident country singer, mm -hmm. and Scout Niblet's got a very fragile voice. that is you know intentionally it mm -hmm. like when she goes for high notes they're not particularly convincing there's a there's a, there's a frailty to her voice that is very engaging and makes a vulnerable song sound all the more vulnerable i think it really complements it it shows that he was really thinking about what he was trying to do with this mm -hmm. song and realized that there was something that even as the writer he couldn't bring it proper old blues you know like the gritty 30s 40s kind of vibe kind of you know and uh, yeah and almost, proper dust bowl dark it almost has no tempo as well yeah. it's got that it's so relaxed it's, it feels like a very natural mm -hmm. performance um john henry split my heart is the one that you've mentioned before it we recorded this about the yeah. black he's black sabbath <laughs> yeah influence yeah. showing through man you can hear it immediately it's which also makes it another thing you just thought this record goes in so many different directions you think you've got a handle on it because you're like oh cool farewell transmission yeah he's kind of doing like the kind of old country thing it's pretty cool 
he's really good at it and then it just starts going off in these weird tangents like this is old country black sabbath at the start it's just like the riff the pace everything about it And it just sounds so expansive because it's got like, you know, the the horns and everything and all the weird yeah, stuff. Yeah, you know? it's, it's 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 quite bombastic this yeah. one. Although it's nice how he sort of very quickly brings it down just to the p- piano motif mm-hmm. with his voice yeah. and then expands it again. Mm-hmm. It's quite a quite a clever bit of arrangement in that. Dynamics again. It's kind of triumphant yeah. as well. Totally. Like, yeah. It's 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 a weirdly joyous song. There's 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 something quite eminently positive mm-hmm. about it. Um, this is despite the name. Lot of slide in it as well, and there's it's got that it's got a lot of repetition of lines and a much more conventionally blues style. Mm-hmm. You know that way where the, the lyrics are just repeated from verse to verse, just to allow them to kind of really embed. And then what's the final track on the you know the official m- first uh, official version mm-hmm. of the album is "Hold On Magnolia." I think it's the most intimate or personal of the songs. Yeah. Um, it's his voice as well, obviously, unlike Peoria Lunchbox Blues, which is the saddest one, but Scout Niblet sings it. And this one, it is him, it's his song, it's his lyrics. Albini's really captured the shaking in his voice in this. Like if you listen between the notes, as he's as his vocals are tailing off at the end of each syllable and line, you can hear his voice wobble with mm-hmm. the emotion of what he's singing. You have to you have to really pay attention because the guitar often rises over it, but you can hear it in there just as it's wobbling away. It's a really, really delicate performance, really beautiful. I can imagine the mic was very close, the room was deadly silent. You might be holding the last light I see before the dark finally gets a hold. There's a really nice use of violin in this. It's, it's very delicate as well, and I think, yeah, when I think when I think of Jason Molina, I think of that song. That's okay. the one that feels closest to him as all the different aspects of his personality. This sense of positivity, the the unshaken air of melancholia, but. Uh, the tenderness, all that stuff. It's, it's something really wonderful about that. There's a, that line in it is, you might be the last station I see before the dark finally gets a hold of me. That's it's a, just heartbreaking. That's a beautiful line. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's got that thing as well. Where he repeats the line, um, "Hang on, Magnolia," and then the, the the last couple of times he goes up with Magnolia, really pushes his voice mm-hmm. up up the way. It's, it's really pretty, like really pretty. I think, as I said earlier, we've given Steve Albini a wee bit of stick for some of his kind of weaker production. Smashed it with McCluskey, he's not always smashed it 
let's not kid ourselves I'm a big fan of him but I think it's important to be sort of honest about it as well but I don't think anybody could have done a better job of this album this is if anybody ever asks me tell me why you like Steve Albini I'm like this this record is wonderful and it's a a huge part of realising that is down to him when you listen to the other stuff that he's recorded as Magnolia Electric Company and Songs of Haya and Jason Molina it's never been able to shine and really uh, flourish the way his music does on this record I, I don't believe so anyway I didn't I, the first few times I heard it I had no idea it was a Steve Albini record because it doesn't sound like typically Albini the drums aren't even the same kind of production that he usually goes for but I think it's just because of the type of music it is if that makes sense yeah I mean I th- I think the airiness of it made me feel like it's Albini. You know, it's it's got space at the top of it, and that's mm. the thing that Albini does. You hear the decay of instruments because he uses such such excellent, you know, like very expensive <laughs> condenser microphones and classic microphones to capture, you know, cymbals and the top ends of stringed instruments and stuff like that. So, but he also just captures that energy. And yeah, and that's his main <laughs> that's his main skill. It's yeah. like what is happening in front of me. What is the magic of what is happening in front of me, and how can I make sure that's translated? I think, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but it really works in this one. Sorry, I just went off for like two minutes there to find the name of a guy that I saw in the street when I was over in Melbourne. <laughs> no, last year when I was in Melbourne, it was just him and an acoustic guitar, and played to you know like thirty people in a room. This really reminded me of that. It was like just this beautiful tragic country music man just all of a sudden i was like fuck the last time i felt like this with music like this was you know a year and a half ago in this tiny little room when i was in australia with hardly anybody i knew and it was fucking great so uh go and check matthew colin out uh if you like this stuff that's can, my, that's can we thing. talk a little bit about the two bonus tracks yeah yeah they should be on the record i can see why they're not because Hold On Magnolia is the best way to end it and I can't really see where they would fit on the album to be honest no. but they're both really good they're great bits of music I th- yeah. I'm a big fan of the big games every night that's, yeah. that's I really like that song yeah. it'll get so quiet when this record ends you can hear the first hour Yeah. When that came on, I was like, that's so good. And then I looked, I was like, oh, wait, it's one strike. <laughs> yeah, I was the same. I was, it felt weird after. I just had it on Spotify yeah. and had that come on. I was like, it's got oh, be- another one, another beautiful line great. that it'll get so quiet when this record ends. Yeah. Such a, a beautiful <laughs> meta line. Yeah. 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 On an album like this is it's wonderful. Um, yeah. Uh, what was the name of the, the other bonus track? Yeah. Whip, Whip Poor Will. Yeah. Sorry. Whip Poor Will. Yeah. Wh- yeah. Poor Will, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whipper Will. Whip, poor Will. Will Wheaton. Weezer. Will Wheaton. Whipper Will. I've got my window open in the Southern Cross Hotel. It's been my longest night, I can tell. Again, it's like back to the kind of countryish vibe, but, mm-hmm. you know, pretty good too. Yeah, it, it's good. It, I, I don't, it's it's the weaker of the two bonus tracks for me, mm-hmm. but it's still in good company, mm-hmm. let's put it that way. But I don't think this record drags in any way. And that's why I think first track I is mean, like a microcosm of the whole album in that, yeah, it's a fairly long record uh, on the so- or the songs are long, but at no point does it outstay its, ri- its yeah. welcome yeah. at all. He knows what he's doing. He knows exactly where things need to be, which I know that sounds like a really obvious thing to say, 
but a lot of great bands don't get that right mm. you know they, yeah. they could release great records with fucking cracking songs on it sometimes they, re- they release amazing toxicity albums. by system of a down <laughs> just get rid of four of those tracks there's even albums in this that, that that's in this discography that are like that have got full of great songs but they don't quite work in the same way this does they don't have the same kind of Mm. magic and and sequencing and arrangement and dynamics and you know it, it's weird to say for an album that has tracks that are like eight minutes long but it's very lean yeah it is weird to say that but it really is that doesn't yeah, totally. overstate as well can we should probably give a shout out as well to the guy uh, will shaft that did the iconic cover art of the owls and the kind of blue as a woodcut or something it's yeah. just such a beautiful cover like really really distinctive cover um beautiful painting but unfortunately any like discussion of this album is sort of only half the story without considering how Jason Molina's life went after this because it the reading of the album and the reading of the lyrics of the album and the the messages that were on it are kind of informed by what happened subsequently um so as we say like according to Jason Groth his bandmate as his friends and and colleagues started to really notice that alcohol was becoming an issue in his life the year of this album around about the tours that they did um supposedly they were in europe at one point and a promoter had given them like a 140 proof drink you know as some bars are want to sell david to people like yourself or your, your <laughs> heard of it. albeit heard of it. in very small quantities and um apparently the driver had spotted him in the, the rearview mirror like necking like three yeah you finished the bottle by the time they got out of the yeah, car and, and couldn't walk had to be carried to, to the venue and this started to become uh, uh, not a routine but certainly started to become too common um, they had a couple of nights uh, I think uh, in Chicago in 2009 and supposedly the first of these two gigs was one of the greatest performances the band had ever put on well this was uh, supporting the Avett Brothers I think is that the one yeah, yeah and yeah. then the second one was an absolute disaster down to him being unable to play being able, unable to stand up properly insulting the band members on stage and I think the drummer Mark Rice quit that same year shortly after kind of as a result of that you know I think like this, the thing with alcoholism the kind of way it starts to erode people's judgement and that you can quite easily convince yourself there's something else going on Right, maybe he's oh, maybe he means that maybe that's that and maybe that's that so supposedly for the 2009 tour he arranged for them to get like a tour bus instead of them touring in a van which was kind of a little bit out with their budget and it kind of led to a lot of trouble because the proximity of the bus with them all living in the bus mm-hmm. became really problematic he was either not sleeping at all or passing out on the bus with bottles of booze in his hands and the band were trying to have interventions with them to say to him and it Groth had said to him and he was, he was married as well yeah, uh, he and his wife Darcy, Darcy yeah. who just tried her best as well. Yeah, she was she was getting more and more concerned with them. They were they were trying to intervene. Groth had told them, look, you need to take a year off. You, you, the alcohol is literally killing you. Well, that was the plan. Uh, supposedly, if they had this big heart to heart that night, with Groth saying that to him, and he agreed. And then the next day, all of them they had the day off in Istanbul. They all went out sightseeing, and Jason Molina stayed in the hotel and got drunk the entire day. Um, 2010 they cancelled like a huge tour got into like quarrels with people who were asking why it was happening and then he got into a cycle of like sobering up falling off the wagon sobering up falling off the wagon apparently he told his wife at, at various points everything from that he'd had he'd contracted AIDS to he had brain cancer 
to that he'd had multiple affairs, presumably in some sort of attempt to push her away or... Oh, well, I think this is something that had always been part of his life, though, was that he used to tell maybe little fibs for fun. But then when that got sort of caught up with yeah. his alcoholism, he'd then tell much bigger lies because he was A trying to cover... A lot more sinister. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, absolutely. In 2011, he, he went to rehab in a number of countries and his folks had actually released like a public statement saying that he was away farming goats and chickens mm. trying to sober up well he did actually spend a bit of time on a farm yeah yeah supposedly so yeah that's right he went in rehab for six weeks as well at one point uh, he was discharged the day before his wife's birthday and between being discharged from the, the institution and getting home got absolutely fuck faced uh, at which point uh, she told him to move out 2012 he released a statement that seemed sort of quietly optimistic that he was in some kind of road to recovery but supposedly in the background so he'd moved for he'd moved they'd, they'd moved to europe they'd moved to london at one point and obviously the uk healthcare is free mm-hmm. well free to some extent uh, you're covered uh, by the national health service for most things and treatment for things like alcoholism is it falls under that but when he moved back to chicago he was uninsured and they ran out of options to start paying for all these interventions and these admissions to think i mean he was vomiting blood at times getting admitted to a and e for days at a time and he started running up these massive hospital bills and the last few years of his life became this just catalog of hospital bills that were bankrupting him um the family had to appeal to fa- uh, to fans and friends to support them mm-hmm. in his treatment so people were literally just sending checks running like holding benefit gigs for him to try and help him sober up. Yeah, and it, it, as I say, it did seem like in 2012 that there was like a, that there was a light at the end of the tunnel. He released, he'd been writing some more stuff. It seemed like he was going to be back on it. But then he ultimately was found dead in his apartment in Indianapolis in 2013. Supposedly it's kind of like one of those like really sorry images of like an alcoholic's final place you know he was estranged from his wife at that point um they tried even even after they'd separated she tried to help but uh, it just wasn't happening by that stage uh, when they found him he had uh, apparently a, a pan of spinach and beans on his uh, cooker a bottle of vodka in his freezer and cigarette butts all over his carpet and the only thing that they noticed was that he'd bought a new guitar three weeks prior so he had he'd written some lyrics down and stuff so he's obviously still mm-hmm. trying to somehow get through it but it was it was uh too little too late and it's just such a and the guy was 39 and he died of multiple organ failure and given that he only started really drinking acutely in 2003 according to his friends and family that's a lot of drinking that is a lot of drinking in 10 years i mean wow there are alcoholics that have been drinking as alcoholics for 50 plus years and yeah they're a mess this boy died when he was 39 Looking back at his catalogue with that in mind, it's like it's kind of impossible to appraise it without that in mind. It's a bit like the Elliot Smith thing. It's like mm-hmm. once you know where his head was at, once you know what was going on in these people's minds, that the, their output reads differently. Chris mm-hmm. Cornell as well. Oh, maybe he wasn't just a big jovial, jubilant rock star that you know was a mad shagger. Maybe there was actually mm-hmm. something wrong, and you really do start to notice all these things that beforehand you'd sort of conveniently overlooked because it didn't fit your interpretation. That's not Jason Molina was obviously always quite an intense and downbeat guy based on his earlier output, but there is no getting away from the exponentially greater air of tragedy that this this put around his records. And I think especially in Magnolia Electric Company, 
by Magnolia Electric Company slash Songs of Hire. We'll haggle <laughs> about that online. Um, but just because it seemed like such a breakthrough and it seemed like such a, it was a high mark. He recognised as a high mark. Everybody around him, the guys in the band, Steve Albini, they all recognised that this is incredible. This is this is what this guy's been capable of. And then that was the beginning of a very ugly 10-year decline and death. And it's like, shit. <laughs> so, yeah. But a really fucking good record. A really beautiful so thank record. thank you for that. A really powerful record. Uh, an absolute classic, no doubt. Um, but probably unsung by, you know, the general public. Definitely unsung. Yeah. Apparently in his life, he only... He, of his entire back catalogue, he's only sold between 200 and 250,000 records. Wow. For a guy with like 16 albums. Well, funnily enough, I messaged your old flatmate, our pal Ruri, uh, tonight, uh, saying that I was coming to record a podcast, and he was asking what record, and I said this, and he was like, oh, never heard of it. And he's the sort of guy that, you know, gets into his music and finds things. So he's looking forward to, you know, discovering about it. He's probably listening to it right now. But he also, he li- he lives in Leeds, and there's a Songs Ohio or Music Ohio um, in, the in the Brudnell in September. There's a couple of shows in London and one that's in right, Leeds. Yeah, yeah. So that's musicians from various Jason Molina projects are coming together and doing a very small UK tour. But they did a couple in the US last year and it went very well, apparently. So mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. Yeah. Fascinating guy. Really, really good album. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, a bit of a bummer of an ending. Totally. We can talk about the socks again if you <laughs> guys want. It's probably that's not going to be it. No, no, that's that's uh, just ends up in that world. Yeah, like well, if this if this record doesn't get in, I might actually turn to the same alcoholism that he did. And yeah, wait, see, <laughs> that's not very sensitive, is it? In this day and age, I uh, well, go and vote for this record and <laughs> save Mark, but also uh, <laughs> come back next week because we're doing a, a really good record next week. Mark, uh, what's the record that you chose for next week? We're doing Marnie Stern by Marnie Stern. Yeah. Uh, so be it um, and I, ironically I'm going to go and have a beer now because that was quite a sad undertaking okay well Jam it's been a pleasure thank you very much thanks night very night. much guys bye